Good morning. So, as has been said already, I am from Dunn. So, I was born in Dunn, Betsy Johnson Hospital. I was raised in Dunn. When I got to uh, college age, I did not move out. I lived with my mom and stayed in Dunn. I was a townie. I never left um, until I moved to Orlando. Well, actually, I, my wife and I got married, and I did move away to uh, Smithfield, which... <laughs> is like, what, 20 minutes up 95? So anyway, I'm a townie, but I'm glad to be home. And you may, you may, uh, you probably are familiar with Dunn as a place to stop for McDonald's or gas on 95, which if you are, that's fine. Um, and if you've ever been through, you've probably seen there's a fair amount of church buildings um, in every corner, and you can see the steeples. Um, so you may wonder, why bother church planting in a place like Dunn, 10,000 people in Harnett County? Um, and I can tell you the statistics, but I, th I think it's probably best illustrated uh, from a story from my family's history. So picture with me the mid-1970s. My dad and his brother are partying one night, and uh, they had not grown up in church whatsoever. They were lost children of the 70s, probably listening to Jackson Brown in a haze. And um, for whatever reason, their, their conversation turns to spiritual things, and they decide... Well, tomorrow, it was a Saturday night, tomorrow let's go to church. So they pick a church, kind of at random, and done. I actually don't know which one it was. Um, they go in, they sit on the back pew, and they're waiting for service to start. And they don't have Sunday best on because they don't own Sunday best, and they have long hair, and uh, they probably look and smell like the night before. And uh, they're only there a few moments, and a, a nice man comes up, introduces himself, says he's a leader there, and he says you need to leave. You're not welcome here. Um, my dad and his brother got up and they walked out of that door and for the rest of his life, my dad never went back to a worship service. Except for weddings and funerals, he never walked back into a church building. Now I'm glad to tell you my dad came to faith three months before he passed away when I was 17 in a hospital room. Um, but I mourn to think about what the effect of those, that one sentence, you're not welcome here, had on his life. He died in his 40s after a lifetime of abusing his body with alcohol and drugs. Uh, I, I think of how it reverberated out in my family's life. Now that story's not rare in a place like Dunn. If you look at the religious statistics, 66% um, of people in Harnett County say their religion is none. Um, and that's actually higher than Wake County. Um, it's a remarkably high number for a place that seems very much Bible Belt, um, Southern church culture. So that's where we are. Um, there's wonderful people in Dunn. There's a great need of the gospel. So keep us in prayer. We've been on the ground a couple of months. Um, we're starting our first community group after Labor Day. And we're um, looking at aiming for launching public worship in January. So pray for us um, that the Lord will do a wonderful work in our hearts um, and in, in the hearts of people in Dunn, and that we'll just get to see him at work bringing life to dead places. But we're not here this morning to talk about me and Dunn. We're not here to talk about church planting. We're here to open the Word of God together to see what he has to say to us this morning. Um, so I invite you to turn for our New Testament reading. In, uh, Hebrews 2, 10 through 18 is actually in your bulletin. So... Um, our New Testament reading, as I said, Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 18. This is God's word, eternally true. 
For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through their fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when he, he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Our Old Testament reading comes from Isaiah chapter 6. You can turn in your pew Bible to page 571. 571. Isaiah 6, and we're going to read through verse 7 this morning. Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this, your word, that you have given to us the gift of your word, that we might not flail about in this life wondering who you are and wondering who we are in you, but that you have revealed these things so that we might catch a glimpse of your glory, that we might see who you are and what you're about, and that you might reveal to us the Lord Jesus Christ and all his grandeur and all his beauty and that you might call us to faith in him. So we pray that by your spirit you would move in these moments to point us to Jesus, to see his beauty all the more, um, to flee from our sin and flee unto him. It's in his name we pray, amen. So maybe you got this for Christmas or you've seen this. This has become very common recently, the, the DNA tests. 
They're very cheap now. They're like $99. And years ago, they were so expensive, it was boring. But it became very, uh, 23andMe, uh, Ancestry.com has their own thing. And you, you uh, give a saliva sample, you send it off. And what you're expecting to get back is a profile. Maybe a profile that'll tell you what you're, you're, you're 23% German or whatever it might be. Um, and most of the people get these. As I said, it was the most popular Christmas gift a couple years ago. Um, and they send off the, the sample and they're expecting to get back some fun facts about themselves. Or maybe they'll get a surprise cousin. They'll be able to fill out the family tree a little bit. But either way, they're expecting this to be not some kind of life-changing revelation necessarily, but they are expecting some fun facts about themselves. It's going to be a positive experience. Um, but interestingly, I read about this recently. In the wake of this becoming such a preponderant uh, thing, uh, there has been uh, skeletons in family closets that have been brought to life. And now there are support groups. Um, the biggest one I found had 6,000 members. Um, support groups called NPE support groups. That's not parent expected. Not parent expected. Because apparently for thousands and thousands of people who've bought these $99 kits, they get their tests back and they discover that their father, who they've grown up thinking was their biological father, is not their father. And it leads to this family fallout, this this thing that they sent off that they thought would be fun for them to discover becomes um, an earth-shattering revelation about cover-ups that they had no idea were going on. They discover things about themselves and about their families that they did not want to know. Now, in our passage this morning, Isaiah has an incredible experience. It's not a DNA test that he sent off, but he gets a peek into the heavenly throne room of God. Now, we know that human beings were created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So you would think that as a human being, to see God, to see God in all His grandeur, this is the fulfillment of our longings. This is something that Isaiah must have desired his whole life. Yet, this experience comes with some unexpected knowledge. As he gets a glimpse of the great king, he gets a glimpse of his own heart. He gets a glimpse of himself and he finds himself in what I think is one of the most terrifying passages in all of scripture. But he also discovers something about the heart of who God is. Something that has huge implications for him back in 740 BC and has humongous world-shifting implications for us this morning. So let's walk through the passage this morning and we'll see exactly what I'm talking about. My first section here, and you've got a section for sermon notes or if you want to draw a caricature of me playing soccer or something, you can. Um, my first section is called A Peek into the Courtroom. A peek into the courtroom. Now, if you notice, our passage this morning is Isaiah 6, which means there's been five whole chapters before we get to this vision. And those first five chapters are like an attorney presenting a case. If you look at chapter 1, verse 2, um, Isaiah, as the prophet sent from God, calls heaven and earth as his witnesses. And what he begins to do is unpack this case against the people of God. Now, for the past 200 years, Israel's history has been a bit chaotic. The kingdom that was once united has been split in two for the last couple hundred years. You have the kingdom of Israel in the north, 
You have the kingdom of Judah in the south. And for the most part, this has been a cycle of chaos and rebellion with a few bright spots along the way. And both of the kingdoms have become places of oppression and injustice, places of greed and idolatry. So Isaiah chapter 1 through 5, if you read through, is the case against them with the attorney telling them unless something drastic changed, they were doomed to reap what they were sowing. So in chapter 1, he says, Isaiah tells them that their worship in the temple had become detestable because their hands were covered in the blood of the oppressed. And he says this, do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. In chapter 2, he tells them that even though their land is filled with silver and gold and horses and chariots, that underneath the surface, what's really going on is their land is filled with idols, with false gods. In chapter 3, he says this, The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor? In chapter 5, right before our passage this morning, it ends with a list of seven different woes, trouble, sorrow, that is coming upon the people unless they turn from their oppression, unless they turn from their sin and wickedness. And so chapter 6 this morning, in Isaiah is not a very hopeful book in these first five chapters. Um, it has glimmers of hope as Isaiah tells them to turn and flee to this God who's filled with grace. But chapter 6 finds us in the divine throne room with Isaiah for the verdict. The case has been made. The people have not turned from their oppression. They have not taken God seriously. And through Isaiah, we get a peek into the courtroom to overhear the verdict being handed down. Look at verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now we have a historical marker here to tell us when this happens. The year that King Uzziah died. That was 740 B.C. And things had grown particularly chaotic. In the northern king of Israel, in the last 12 years, they had had five different kings. Three of whom gained their throne by assassinating their predecessor. Their judicial system had collapsed and opportunists had taken advantage of the chaos. Greed was good in northern Israel. In Judah, King Uzziah, the one referenced here, he had reigned for 52 years. This was the longest reign in the kingdom up to this time historically. And he was an able administrator, though prideful. So Isaiah finds himself with the only, he's a resident of Judah, the southern kingdom. The only king he's ever known in his whole life has just passed away. In the northern kingdom of Israel, it's been chaos king after king, death after death. And in the midst of this chaos, he gets a glimpse to see behind the curtain. He sees the true king. The year that the king, only king he's ever known has passed away, he sees the true king. He sees the Lord seated on a throne. He sees him high and lifted up. And the train, the hem, the very bottom of his robe, fills the entirety of the temple. Above him are these angelic creatures, the seraphim, who are proclaiming to one another that he is holy, 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 and that the entire earth is full of his glory. 
And at the booming of their voices, the very foundation underneath Isaiah's feet shakes and the entirety of the temple is filled with smoke. Isaiah sees the true king, God himself, reigning in his holiness. And Isaiah is overwhelmed at the scene, which leads us to our second point. He's had a peek into the courtroom and the great king He gets a peek within his own heart, a peek within. So what would we expect to hear from Isaiah next? Think about it. He's been mostly alone in his ministry. He's been frustrated at every turn. So he's only been able to depend on God, faith in God. And so he who has struggled in the oppression and injustice of his own people, he sees God who gives life. What would you expect him to do? cry out, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. Finally, I get to see God. Remember that song from a few years ago, um, Christian band, Mercy Me, called I Could Only Imagine, or I Can Only Imagine. It was everywhere. Um, And it pictures what it's going to be like. He says, if I get to see Jesus, what will my heart feel? Will I dance before you, Jesus? When all of you be still, will I stand in your presence? To my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? Isaiah chapter 6 says, none of the above. Isaiah's encounter with God does not lead him to dancing. It does not lead him to singing. It leads to despair. Despair. Because Isaiah's vision of God has become a vision of everything else in true clarity. It's become a lens through which he can see himself and the world around him. And he realizes that even though he's proclaimed the justice of God and he has called others to take God seriously, that Isaiah himself is complicit. That he cannot distance himself from the wickedness that he had condemned in the first five chapters. Consider this. Look at verse 5. He says, Woe is me. Woe. Trouble, sorrow is coming my way. Woe is me. Now, in the first five chapters, Isaiah has declared woe upon the people of the land in chapter 3 and chapter 5. Actually, if uh, you want to flip to it, chapter 3, verses 9 and 11, Isaiah says this to the people. Woe to them. So the same word, woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat of the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. Isaiah, here in chapter 6, facing God himself, realizes that he cannot count himself among the righteous. He cannot see himself as detached from the people, as lifted above the muck, that he too is one who is unclean, unholy. He is stained and without recourse or appeal in the courtroom of a holy God. This is not Isaiah play acting. This is not false humility. Seeing God in all his majesty has given Isaiah a lens through which he can see everything else. And he has discovered that he is sinful, both individually and as a member of his people. And as he says in verse 5, I am lost. I am undone. And that leads us to our third point. A peek into the heart of God. A peek 
to the heart of God. So what should we expect in the aftermath of this? Isaiah has proclaimed woe and trouble upon himself. He has seen the Lord. He's expecting to be destroyed. Think of the terror of this scene. One of these terrifying creatures, these seraphim, who Isaiah has had trouble even describing, is suddenly flying toward him. But not just flying toward him, flying toward him with a burning coal in his hand. I love horror movies, I have to admit, and I've seen my fair share, but I cannot imagine a more viscerally terrifying scene than this. But wonder of wonders, Isaiah is not consumed, though he is unclean. He is not destroyed. In fact, he is cleansed. Look at verse 7. The seraphim says this to him. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah has said, I am lost and I am unclean. My eyes have seen the Lord. And the seraph says, no, I know you've seen that. But behold, see this. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah can only see the terror, but see this, the revelation of the heart of God for him. What has been destroyed is Isaiah's sin. He has encountered the holiness of God and has been made holy himself. Now, Isaiah has a very long, difficult ministry after this. He ministers for another four decades. And in that ministry, he's mostly rejected, he's mostly ridiculed, in fact, after this vision, if you read the rest of verse, uh, chapter 6, he's sent out as a representative of this heavenly court to pronounce God's verdict of judgment. His message for most of his ministry is like smelling salts to people in a stupor. So I have to ask, what could propel him through the difficulties to maintain hope for the purposes of God to continue and flourish despite sin and despite rebellion. Because if you read through the entirety of the book of Isaiah, this is the same Isaiah that says in chapter 25 that God will defeat death, that he will swallow it up forever, that he will wipe away the tears of his people. This is the same Isaiah that declares there's a suffering servant that God will bring that will bring peace and healing, forgiveness and transformation, that he will renew the strength of the people that trust in him. This is the same Isaiah that declares good news to the poor, freedom to those who are bound, and freedom to the oppressed. This is the same Isaiah who will proclaim some of the most poetic and profound passages about the grace of God and the coming of Jesus Christ. How could Isaiah, who faced such op opposition, such hopelessness in his own life, how could he open his mouth and put pen to paper to record such things. It's because here in Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted. And he heard the seraphim declare, holy, holy, holy. He heard them declare that the Lord's holiness was good news for him because it was a holiness that would seek him out, not to destroy him but to make him whole. In other words, he caught a glimpse, a peek into the heart of God. And he wrote it down. 
He wrote it down here in Isaiah 6 as a signpost for us, as an arrow pointing forward so we can anticipate this holy God to work in his holiness to cleanse and purify those who would come to him. And how would he do that? Not simply through a burning coal from an altar, but through Jesus, which is my next section, section four, Jesus, the greater Isaiah. Isaiah 6, like all of the Old Testament, is a cliffhanger. It's an arrow pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Because in Isaiah 6, we only catch a peek into the heart of God, a small glimpse that trains us to look for more. But in Jesus Christ, we not only get a peek into the heart of God, we see a glorious revelation of God's heart in the fullness of his holiness and grace. Whereas 2 Corinthians 4, 6 tells us, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Not only a peek behind the curtain, because the curtain has been torn in two and the glory is seen by us. Think about it. In Isaiah 6, God calls one man into his presence to hear a declaration of judgment. But in Jesus, God comes to us. That's why he's called Emmanuel, God with us. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah is sent out to continue a ministry of frustration. And even though he proclaimed at times a future hope, he lives his entire life in ministry under the verdict of God against his people. But in Jesus, good news is proclaimed to us. Good news that we can also live under the verdict of God against our sin because it is a judgment that was visited on Jesus Christ on our behalf. That Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to the bitter dregs for us. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees a surprising fact about God's holiness. That it's a cleansing holiness. That it's a fellowship creating holiness. But for Isaiah, it's only for himself. Yes, his sin was cleansed and his guilt taken away. But Isaiah couldn't turn around and give that to anyone else. We read Isaiah 6 as spectators who see this great moment in his life. But in Jesus, we discover that this is true for all those who come to him in faith. That God's holiness is not a thing that distances us from him. It's the quality of God who has revealed himself in scripture. His holiness seeks us out. His holiness makes us new. His holiness is not a destructive force against us. It's his undeflected purpose to ensure that his will for humanity will not be spoiled by sin. That's, what's, that's what God's holiness for us is in Christ Jesus, is his undeflected purpose that he will show us grace, not just now, the immeasurable riches of his grace, as Ephesians 2 talks about, in the ages to come. That's what the author of the book of Hebrews was talking about in Hebrews 2, which we read. God's purpose for humanity is that we would flourish and thrive, glorifying him and enjoying him forever, or what the author of Hebrews calls bringing many sons to glory. The coming of Jesus, the ultimate expression of God's fellowship creating holiness, is the mission to bring this about. As Hebrews 2 verses 10 and 11 says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author or the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Now hear this. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. And this, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. 
Let that sink in. So now we're called sons and daughters of God. We're called brothers and sisters of Jesus. And he stands with us. And though we cannot even understand the depths of our sin, our mixed motives, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He has the family reunion t-shirt and he wears it every day. What grace. And for us, the way we're cleansed is not a burning coal from an altar. It's what the coal pointed to all along. God dealing with sin finally and destroying sin in Jesus Christ. So that leads me to application. So what? This is a cool scene to read. It's, it's nice to unpack. But what does this mean for our life? What can we take out from this room today and put into practice? Well, I have a couple of um, suggestions to think about this. The first one's this. We must allow a vision of God's holiness in Christ to lead us to true confession. We must allow the revelation of God's holiness in Christ to lead us to true confession. As 2 Corinthians 4 says, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And like Isaiah's vision of the glory of God here, this becomes not just a revelation of who God is, it becomes a lens through which we can see everything else. It becomes a revelation of our own hearts. But I think, I'm going to preach to myself for a minute here. I think our impulse is to run, to minimize, to act like our sin isn't really that bad, to explain away. For instance, I know I'm a man of unclean lips. I know the things I've thought the things I've said, the things I've done. And I know all the good things I haven't done, the things I've left undone. But not just that, I'm also a man of a people of unclean lips. If I dig in my family history, I discover gross immorality, substance abuse, adultery, just in my family. I discover slave ownership. I discover, I discover clan membership. If I begin to trace all the lines, it is a terrifying thing. The truth is, I'm a far worse sinner than I can ever imagine. And you are too. But the good news is this. You are far more loved than you could ever dare hope. So we allow this vision of Christ, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, to lead us to true confession without fear. Which leads me to my second application point, and I'll close with this. We must live under the verdict of God's courtroom. We must live under the verdict of God's courtroom. A few years ago, I was at a leadership conference, and I don't tend to enjoy leadership conferences, but this one was pretty good. And, uh, but one of the speakers they had was the CEO of multinational company. I won't say his name, but he had a TV show, and um, all things pointed to this being a pretty good guy. Um, 
And he was telling us about his motivations for leadership, his motivations for investing in people underneath him, his motivations for doing this and that initiative at work. And he said he gets up every morning and he looks in the mirror and he says, shame on you. Shame on you. It was a, a, a verdict that he pronounced upon himself every morning. And he said he did that because he could remember ways that he had mistreated others. He could remember ways that he had not done the right thing. And this shame on you was a verdict that echoed through the, his entire life. Became the fuel that kept him running as a very successful in the eyes of the world CEO. It was an exercise that he did every day that he thought led him to real change. There's only one problem, and that's a very big one, that this is not how people change. Sure, shame will get you started, but it's like putting diesel in a non-diesel car. It'll get you a little ways down the road, but it will sputter out and destroy the entire engine. Or to abandon that metaphor and to speak very frankly, shame will kill your soul. Coming to grips with uh, how sinful we are, um, that we are far more sinful than we could ever imagine, that we are people of unclean lips, um, this could lead us to shame. This could lead us to a guilt-driven way of life. It could lead us to live our lives out of a sense of shame, to obsess over ourselves and all the ways that we've done wrong. But we're invited this morning in this passage in Christ, we are invited to live under the verdict of God's courtroom over us. And that's the verdict that's declared over us in Christ. The courtrooms of this world and the courtroom of your own heart will declare shame on you. But Jesus invites us not to fear the reality of how sinful we are, but to flee to him and find his grace time and time again. He invites us to step out of the courtrooms of this world and to live under the verdict of Christ Jesus, who has declared us righteous, not because of ourselves, but because what he has done on our behalf. And as we abandon the things that we cling to, as we abandon the idols of our own heart, and we cling to him and his grace, we know that we are declared righteous because of what he has done on our behalf, that we are forgiven of sin, and we can walk in that verdict in this world. And that means not fearing discovering things about ourselves. Because we understand when we discover things that we need to change about ourselves, that that's not a final verdict on us that we can walk forward. This is what living the life of a Christian is all about. Not operating out of a sense of guilt, but finding Jesus as our motive and finding Jesus as our means. Jesus as our why and Jesus as our how. That we turn from sin not only because it's ugly, but we turn from sin to Jesus because he's so beautiful. That we walk with confidence and hope, not because we're perfect, but because he is the fountain of all goodness and grace. He is the well of God's life-giving grace that will never, ever run dry. And that's why the New Testament tells us we can approach the throne of God with boldness. 
And we can pray in the name of Christ and know that we always have a hearing before the Father. So brothers and sisters, hear the invitation of God this morning from Isaiah 6 to live under the verdict of Christ's righteousness. Let's pray. Father, you are holy. We see here in Isaiah 6 this revelation of your holiness, your majesty, your grandeur. And we understand that outside of Christ, we are like Isaiah. We are undone. Woe to us in this revelation of your, your holiness. But we thank you that in Christ, we are dearly loved. That that is the measure of your holiness. The ultimate manifestation and revelation of it is Christ coming to seek us and to make us holy, to set us apart and make us yours. So we pray, God, that you will dig this deep within our hearts, that we will live under this verdict, that we will see all things in this world rubbish aside from seeing you and being known as yours, Lord Christ. Thank you for this good news. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.